Hi, Ashley. Hi, Erin. I'm excited to hear part two of your interview with Admiral James DeVritis. I know, me too. He had so many great pearls of wisdom to share that we couldn't pack it all into our usual 30 minutes. This week, we'll take a deeper dive into some of the bigger forces at play, things like geopolitics and cyber risk. And of course, because it's the Admiral, we'll end with a dose of inspiration. Sounds perfect. But first, we have some bittersweet news to share with our listeners. We do. After nine wonderful years, I'm leaving NACD to move on to other adventures. And that also sadly means stepping down as your co-host. The podcast won't be the same without you, Erin. I'll definitely miss working with you on this, but I know the show is in great hands with you, Ashley, and with Bruno. I'm excited to keep listening and to see who you feature next. Well, with that, do you want to do the honors one final time? Let's do it. I'm Ashley Marchand Orm. And I'm Erin Essenmacher. And this is Future Fluency, a podcast by the National Association of Corporate Directors, where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impact on business. Erin, as we said at the top of the show, this episode features the second half of your great conversation with Admiral James DeVritis. Yes, and we'll start in a place that's been in the news of late, especially as we've all flocked to platforms like WebEx and Zoom, cybersecurity. Admiral, in the first part of our interview, you touched on cybersecurity as you were talking about tabletop exercises and how they can benefit boards in terms of scenario planning. Clearly, you have expertise around cybersecurity. I know it's something you've spoken about at length and one of the many reasons I'm sure that your boards are happy to have you around the table. It's also been an issue that's come up a lot recently, particularly as we think about the rise of virtual meetings and the software being used to conduct those meetings. There are examples of just bad behavior interrupting classrooms or other events, but there are real security concerns from a business standpoint. How should business leaders be thinking about cybersecurity and information security threats in the context of the fact that we've all gone virtual with our communication and our meetings? Yeah, I'm unfortunately, I don't have a lot of good news here. Uh, let's face it, um, all of us are jumping onto generally whatever platform is the easiest to use, uh, is the most accessible, is the lowest cost. Here's a news flash. Many of those platforms are largely unencrypted, uh, quite crackable by hackers. And I think we need to be very careful about what we're putting over lightly encrypted or non-encrypted platforms, some of which, in fact, um, have ties back to China, which conducts a great deal of industrial espionage. That's simply a fact. And as a result, um, that's another layer of vulnerability. A way to think about it for a board uh, or a C-suite is three threat vectors, all of which are blinking red in the wake of this coronavirus crisis. The first is national security, the traditional bad actors, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, all correctly perceive that there is much more information, much more vulnerability flowing across relatively lightly encrypted platforms. So there's a national security threat. Second, there's a cyber criminal threat that can range from obtaining, let's say, embarrassing information about a company and then going to the company in a kind of a spin on classic ransomware and saying, either you pay us X or we're going to release this highly embarrassing clip of the board taking its its gloves off and really 
going to town in a in a bitter way, arguing about some embarrassing situation. Uh, that could be an enormous business cost to an enterprise. So cyber criminal activity, and and of course, alongside that, your employees are going to be more vulnerable to phishing at the moment. Now there's a whole new way to fish, which is to get them to click on something that says, oh, I'm from the World Health Organization, and we're doing a, a survey globally of who's had the following symptoms. And you know, people love to talk about their medical condition, and they love to think they're doing something to help out in the crisis. Click, whoops, now you're, you're hacked. So cyber criminal activity is second. And then third is there are organizations with the WikiLeaks mentality, if you will, and do-gooders who think that they are going to be able to uh, embarrass or push a corporation to do something if they can only find out what the board is talking about. And as boards prepare, for example, for annual meetings, which are going to be held virtually, and I, I think there's no problem there. Those are certainly, you want those to be public events. But let's face it, every board, every C-suite spends a lot of time orchestrating what's going to be said, what won't be said, how we're going to structure that annual board meeting, which is now going to be done virtually. That is a treasure trove of potentially embarrassing information, frankly, because nobody's perfect all the time, especially when they think they're in a cloistered board setting. So I think there are three different vectors. They're all blinking red. And what should we do about it? Uh, We don't have time to dive wildly into that. You might want to insert link here of my latest article in Bloomberg Opinion, which talks in some practical ways about how to avoid these challenges. But I'll simply say, be careful about thinking that when you're on that Zoom call or that Microsoft Team call or one of our Cisco WebEx, um, be careful of thinking that Uh, you are in the same kind of security you are when you're in a traditional face-to-face boardroom. You're just not. That's powerful information and an important perspective. And we do provide show notes for all of our interviews. So we'll absolutely link to your Bloomberg piece here. That's great. Aaron, I'm so glad that you and Admiral Stavridis were able to talk about cybersecurity. I recently chatted with NACD marketing manager Victoria Velas about two upcoming NACD events. One is specifically about cybersecurity and privacy. Take a listen. Victoria, there's so much going on at NACD right now. Can you give us a sense of what events are on the horizon? Yes, of course. And thanks, Ashley, for having me on to chat with you about two upcoming NACD virtual events. It's no secret that cyber threats are on the rise during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now more than ever, cybersecurity is a critical area of oversight for the board. Against that backdrop, NACD is hosting a virtual event called the Cybersecurity and Privacy Forum on June 23rd. This event will help directors bolster their understanding of what it means to be cyber resilient, gain a better sense of consumers' privacy expectations, and understand the context of cyber and privacy risks in the current operating environment. This event is open to anyone, both NACD members and non-members. Ashley, it's also important to note that on June 2nd, a few weeks before the Cyber and Privacy event, the NACD will be hosting its Leading Through Uncertainty virtual event. This is an NACD member-only event that will explore the risks and opportunities that have emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Leading Through Uncertainty will help boards strengthen their governance toolkit by providing guidance and tactical takeaways for the board to perform at its best during the challenging months ahead. And for more information on these two events or any of our other virtual events, please visit nacdonline.org forward slash virtual. Thanks again for having me, Ashley, and I hope that all of our listeners are staying safe and healthy. Thank you, Victoria. We hope you're staying safe and healthy these days, too. Aaron, what's great about these virtual courses is that they can help leaders prepare for the volatile operating environment we find ourselves in right now. And speaking of leading through uncertainty, I know the Admiral discussed the importance of preparedness and leadership in times of crisis. Let's jump back into the interview. In the beginning part of our conversation, you were talking about things that leaders should be thinking about to sort of harness the moment we're in and to come from a place of strength. And one of the many things you touched on was innovation. We know that sometimes the best innovations can come from constrained circumstances. And I would certainly describe the current moment that we're in, both as citizens and as employees, as business leaders, as a constrained circumstance. What creative solutions have you seen emerge from companies or from leaders, whether it's in corporate America or other sectors of the country, that have been particularly notable to you in terms of how people are seizing on innovation in this moment? First and foremost, it's a pretty good time to look at the human capital and the talent in an organization. Because at times like this, there is uh, a tendency to uh, see a different type of leader emerge. And that can be down in the small work center or all the way up in the C-suite. And again, to reach back into history, think about uh, World War II and Pearl Harbor and the the extremely gracious and well-liked and low-key admiral who was in charge of the Pacific Fleet, husband Kimmel was his name, um, dropped the ball. He he lost uh, the thread of accountability, and as a result, he was replaced by Chester Nimitz, an enormous upgrade. Um, Another classic example from American history is Abraham Lincoln grappling with finding the right general in the uh, Civil War. He starts off with uh, everybody's favorite general, George McClellan, top of his class at West Point, dashing looking soldier. Um, Turns out he wasn't much of a combat leader. He would never get the Army of the Potomac underway to get into the fight. It took Lincoln several years until he found Ulysses S. Grant. So organizations ought to be aware that this is a time to look broadly at the uh, spectrum of talent. And you might find some real innovators uh, who start popping up above the noise level. Second, this is a good time to put an innovation team in place if you don't already have that. And what I mean by that is a small, creative, high energy group of people drawn from across the organization, maybe five people, Uh, for a medium-sized company, maybe a bit larger, 15, say, for a larger corporation, maybe just one or two people in a small corporation. But find the most innovative, creative minds out there, bring them together, give them a limited amount of resources, uh, but push them to come up with innovative ideas. After 9-11, I was a brand new one-star admiral, kind of doing basic bureaucratic budget work, 
But the chief of naval operations grabbed me uh, right after 9-11 and said, Stavridis, you're going to stand up something called Deep Blue, a think tank, an innovation cell for the Navy to tell us how to fight this new kind of war. And he said to me, pick 12 people from across the Navy. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people in the Navy, and I had my pick. Uh, Putting a small team together like that that can then generate ideas for an organization can be very, very effective. And then third and finally, kind of the flip side of this, but it's a different set of people. Where's your red cell? And what I mean by that is a red cell is a group of people, maybe just one or two people, who are the doomsayers, who are the ones who are going to take the glass half empty approach. As you know, Aaron, I talk a lot about the need for hope, but you have to be realistic and clear-eyed. And sometimes you need the uh, doomsayer who is going to tell you from the red cell perspective, what are your opponents thinking? In this case, the virus. Uh, What's the virus's next move? What's the dark side of the equation here? And therefore, how do we plan to deal with uh, the worst? You, You know, I always say, Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. A red cell can help you do that. Admiral, that last suggestion about a red cell in terms of risk mitigation and planning was spot on. And a good segue to my next question, which is that you've talked about how the world's militaries are uniquely positioned to help guide us through a global pandemic, just like the one we're living through now. Can you talk more about why you say that and how you see that playing out? Sure. Uh, First of all, globally, Uh, militaries, for better or for worse, have enormous resources. So they have money. They have people. Here in the United States, it's a $700 billion a year budget, and it's uh, 1.2 million active duty and 800,000 reservists. Enormous resources with all the planes and the ships and the trucks and the field hospitals and the biology labs. And let's face it, militaries have to understand how to conduct combat operations in a potentially bio-warfare construct. We know how to don those kind of suits. We understand personal protective gear very, very well. We know how to test. So enormous resources. Now, the military obviously kind of has a day job, right, which is defending the country for deploying Etc. And secondly, the military has to keep itself healthy so it can do that day job. But even so, given the scale and size of these organizations, the resources that can be devoted to a challenge like this, which is a national security challenge in my view, um, are enormous. So number one is resources. Uh, number two is culture of the military. Here you have a population that is quite young, mostly in their 20s and early 30s, who are all volunteers, uh, predisposed to serve others, care deeply about the country, are willing to take personal risk. Do you think they sound like the people who could help us in a crisis like this? Yes, they can. And then thirdly, um, militaries are very good at building teams. And so when we put those military heroes alongside the heroes in the medical world, the heroes in the uh, civilian police forces and the firefighting teams and internationally alongside our diplomats and our Peace Corps volunteers, 
military can be very helpful at building teams with all of those heroes because this is a time for national service and um, the military can be very helpful as part of that bigger team. Uh, and then fourth and finally, I think it's important to recognize that the military is very good at something quite prosaic that will help us for the next pandemic. And that is the military is very good at stockpiling things and caring for stockpiles. We do it with ammunition and parts and equipment. Um, give the military the task of preparing the national stockpile for medical preparedness. 500 million masks, I don't know, a billion masks, 100,000 ventilators, 10 million sets of advanced PPEs, three fully equipped level four bio labs that are sealed off, ready to go. The military could help us prepare for the next pandemic in that context. And here, another thing to perhaps clip into the podcast or the notes is the article I wrote for uh, Time Magazine uh, just came out on precisely this point, what the military can do to help us get ready for the next pandemic. Great. I absolutely will do. I read that piece. It was excellent and actually one of the things that spurred my question. So thank you for that. Let's stay on the geopolitical stage for a minute here and talk about China. We've obviously had a long and complicated history with China, woven through with lots of interdependency and cooperation. But also in the past several years with things like trade war, cyber threats, as you mentioned earlier, even some back and forth about where the pandemic actually started and who started it. How do you see the current state of the U.S.-China relationship, and what do you think the future state should be? What should we be moving toward in terms of our relationship with China? Yeah, let me, let me start with the bad news here, and I'll just be blunt. The relationship with China is declining precipitously, uh, tactically, during this year, during 2020, and it will continue to do so. You mentioned a couple of the uh, tension points. It's, it's trade and tariffs. It's intellectual property theft. It's aggressive Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. It's the 5G network controversy, which seems so 2019 now, but has not gone away. And it's cyber. Those, those all existed before the pandemic. Now you have 2020 come along and you have a pandemic and you have a U.S. election year. So when I put all that together, it seems to me pretty clear we're going to have a declining relationship with China through 2020 into 2021. I think here's the hopeful part. I think in 2021, after the November election, after the inauguration, uh, hopefully a vaccine is now being widely distributed. I think there'll be a chance to rebound that relationship. We can take the election off the table anyway. Uh, hopefully we can take COVID more or less off the table. Although I think the calls for some kind of compensation, particularly to hard hit uh, smaller nations from China, because uh, it is quite clear this virus came out of China, was mismanaged initially by the Chinese, and either came out of a wet market, which is an exorable set of practices that should be stopped immediately, or it came out in a uh, fumbling, mishandled way from the lab, both in the same city. So China has to answer for that. And I think, I think over time they will. They're not going to provide compensation to the United States, but they might provide compensation to nations in Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa, and I think they should. Uh, so 
I think in 2021, you'll see that relationship hopefully come back toward a more uh, even and balanced keel. But let's face it, Aaron, the, the big challenges I mentioned before we got to bio, before we got to an election year are still going to be there. We've got a lot of work to do with China. 2020 is going to hopefully be the bottom of the relationship and we can build up after that. Great. Thank you for that direct assessment. I think it's especially important as business leaders think about navigating the future and some of the uncertainty we've touched on earlier. It also makes me think about what we're seeing in terms of the impacts to globalization. Whether here in the United States or around the world, we've all felt that impact, how it's lifted economies, how it's completely changed, how we think about work, how we think about trade, technology. And what we're seeing at times can feel like an attack on globalization. Some of this started before the COVID-19 crisis. We saw roots of this and some of the elections happening around the globe in the past couple of years. But certainly that rhetoric has ramped up in the face of COVID-19. We see countries closing their borders, questions about should we be localizing our supply chain. And I'm wondering, as someone who's always been a champion of globalization and really an ambassador in a lot of ways, whether it's the work you've done in the military or since, What do you think will be the near-term impact of globalization? And do you think we'll see a shrinking back to more isolationism? If so, either way, how should companies be thinking about particularly the risks associated with that? I would uh, quote Mark Twain here, who said once that the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated. Um, I, I think globalization is here to stay. Uh, for all the obvious reasons, going back to Adam Smith and the division of labor, um, it, it works. And um, are there going to be some near-term adjustments? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think we'll look hard at our supply chains here in the United States, and I suspect other nations will as well, in particular on high-end medical devices, on pharma drugs, uh, I think on high-tech, and that was underway uh, well before COVID-19. We'll continue to be very tight on defense supply chains. Um, and in general, I think there'll be a tendency to want to tighten all of those to bring some production back toward the United States. But uh, to all those who think that we're going to go back to some kind of a uh, 1929 isolationism with huge tariff barriers. Uh, a, I don't think it'll happen because our prosperity globally and here in the United States depends on globalization. Can we adjust it and tweak it as I just described? Yeah, and we will. And we just finished doing that with the old NAFTA, now the USMCA. Uh, trade agreements with our two largest trading partners, uh, Canada and New Mexico, collectively. And so uh, we are going to adjust, but globalization is certainly not going to go away because our prosperity depends on it. And secondly, because I think we're smart enough, I am cautiously optimistic, we are smart enough as a global society to observe history and see, you know, we kind of tried that. We tried isolating ourselves uh, in the 1920s. We had the Hawley-Smoot tariffs. Uh, We decided that we didn't need the rest of the world and uh, we could just go in and uh, isolate ourselves. How did that work out? Well, uh, we cracked the global economy and uh, you can drop a plumb line to the rise of fascism and the Second World War and 100 million deaths in, in combat around the world. I don't think we're going to stumble back into that world. 
Could we? Yeah, I suppose we could. But I think, A, we've got history to guide us. B, we have a pretty vibrant example of how it looks when it works. And C, um, we need to do some trimming and some adjustments. And I always say, in particular, U.S. and China, the U.S., we have to bend the trade relationship with China, but we don't want to break it. Uh, and I think that is how this one will turn out. But uh, 2020 will put a lot of stress on that function. And uh, whoever is the president in 2021, I think job one geopolitically will be getting the U.S.-China relationship into a stable place. The downside of that failing is just too enormous. Thanks, Admiral. That's good food for thought, especially as we think about the geopolitical risks at play here. I want to end, as promised, kind of where we started, actually, which is looking to the future and not surprising knowing you. I know you're fond of quoting Napoleon, especially at last year's Global Board Leader Summit, where you ended your talk by saying, a leader is a dealer in hope. And I just love that. And I'm wondering, what gives you hope right now? Um, Several things give me a great deal of hope. Uh, One I mentioned earlier is the fact that um, this is not a virus from out of space. Um, we, we know it. We can build a vaccine. We're rapidly closing it. So I would say our technology, our medical heroes uh, who are in the labs, uh, give me hope that we will technically surmount the virus. Secondly, I've derived a great deal of hope watching, in particular, millennials, uh, these young people in their late 20s and early 30s, these doctors and nurses and police and firemen and military who are, who are just suiting up in personal protective devices and going into combat against, uh, it's a very apt phrase, uh, against this invisible enemy, not knowing if they're gonna catch it themselves. Um, it's inspiring to watch And I will say, you know, the millennial generation kind of gets a few knocks here and there. But I'll tell you, having watched them as young people in the military under my command, and especially having watched them over the last three months in all of the other venues of service, um, I come away pretty inspired by these millennials. And I think that speaks volumes about the future of the United States of America. And uh, those two things uh, give me a great deal of hope. And I I hope that our leaders, our national leaders, uh, underline those two things, even as we are clear-eyed about the risks and the disaccommodations that are coming to the economy. There's a lot of fundamental underlying strength in this country. Uh, Our leaders need to tap into it, shine a light on it, And by the way, I'll close by saying I have two daughters. They're both married to doctors, both of whom are frontline. And one of my two daughters is a nurse practitioner who is doing clinics. Go out and find a medical person and tell them, thank you for your service. We need to use that compliment, not just with our military, frankly, but to all those who are serving us in this uh, difficult challenging situation that I believe will ultimately bring us closer together. And that's hard to imagine today, but a year from now, we should do this podcast again and see where we are. 
That's well said. And as listeners to the podcast know, have heard me say before, my baby sister is a critical care nurse on a COVID ward outside Philadelphia. So I certainly appreciate that. I know it's a deep source of pride for our family, what she's doing for the country right now. So blessings to you and your family and to your sons-in-laws and your daughters. We thank them for their service. Admiral James Trevitas, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom as always. It's been a real pleasure. It's my pleasure, Erin. Speaking of hope, Erin, I hope your new adventures are as fun as it's been to host this podcast with you. Oh, thanks, Ashley. My first adventure will be to listen to the next episode of the podcast. You have a great interview lined up. I do. I'll be chatting with that titan of the trust barometer, Richard Edelman. Trust makes societies function. It makes it able to do commerce. It makes you able to believe what uh, government is telling you. And it's based on a feeling of mutuality and a consistency of information flow and facts instead of ideology being the basis of communication. That's next time on Future Fluency. For guest bios and more resources, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.